Amoti lechem in haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, amotzi lechem in haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Borei Pri Hagafen. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Turn back to 
Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone again. If you would, uh, this week's Torah portion is the book of Exodus. Uh, and if you turn there with me, the first chapter of Exodus, the Hebrew name for this book is Shemot. Shemot means names. And that's probably one of the sharpest contrasts between the Hebrew name of the book versus the English name of the book. Now, Exodus, the English name of the book, is going to tell us about what this book is going to describe. It's going to describe the exodus of Moses and the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. However, the book in the Hebrew starts off with the word names. Uh, from the very first verse, it says, Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household. And one of the things that we always want to remind ourselves of, and this is part of the meaning why Shemot takes on the significance for the name of the book, 
is that God's salvation and God's deliverance, which is what this book is going to describe, God's salvation and his deliverance is, in, is for particular people. It is for people who have names. Like you and I, if I come up to meet you, if I'm going to relate to you well, I'm going to have to relate to you by your name. And God's salvation and deliverance isn't just on a mass of people. God actually knows the names of the people personally and individually that are being saved and being delivered. And each of us in the new covenant with the Messiah, we of course emphasize your own personal relationship with the Lord. When Messiah came to do that, that wasn't a whole brand new concept. God has been relating to every person intimately and personally, beginning with Abraham, who was called the friend of God, and right on through to the, to the generations in which that uh, Yeshua came to minister to, and right to our same day. The God of Abraham who knew Abraham by name, is the same God who's the God of you and me, and he knows you and I by name, specifically. So this whole book of Exodus about this great salvation and deliverance out of Egypt, it begins by citing these are the names of the people who are going to be affected uh, by what's taking place. And what is recounted for us is actually something that came out of the book of Genesis back a couple of portions ago. Namely, he rattles off the names of the heads of the households that came from Jacob, and he recounts how Jacob and 70 souls went down into Egypt. And it will be from the descendants of that group that will be coming up out of Egypt. If you read there, um, uh, verse 5, And all persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. And Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. So we're now dealing with the descendants of all of those uh, biblical characters and persons. And although it doesn't list their names here specifically, except in some cases, um, we are dealing with the descendants of those that came down. Now, if you recall, in the previous Genesis portion, it talks about the same 70 persons that went down to Egypt. So what Moses is doing is uh, re recapturing, if you will, the thought of something we learned in Genesis. What did we learn in Genesis? Well, they said there were 70 souls that went down there, but there were only 69 names, if you recall. There were only 69 names listed as those who were descendants. And the, the, the great mystery from Genesis, well, who's the 70th person? And it's, one of the, it's called one of the hidden miracles of the Torah. Uh, in further study, as I've taught you before, the 70th person, in fact, was born the day they got to Egypt, and it was mo the mother of Moses. And the mother of Moses now in these days will be considerably older. She has outlasted, if you will, all of those other previous generations, um, and, and she's now uh, an incredible matriarch um, that is in here. And we're going to hear about how the women uh, played an incredible role in establishing Israel uh, to be able to be set up for salvation. Uh, can I just recount uh, for you just for a moment 
that in my own testimony, uh, I share with people about how did I really come to know the Lord? How, you know, who were the people that really introduced the Lord to me? I can tell you who they were. They were my grandmother and my aunts. They were the female gender of my family. It wasn't the male gender of my family that really laid the foundation for me to become a believer uh, in my most early days. That's what you're going to hear about here with Israel. It's going to be the mother of Moses who's going to be doing some stuff. It's going to be the midwives who are giving birth to these sons, the, the male children, of, and preserving them. It's going to be the women of Israel are literally the roots, the very foundation that brings forth the nation out of Egypt. And they're credited with this in this very first chapter. Um, speaks to certain spiritual truths, I guess, that exist. Uh, since mothers and wives are the ones who guide the house, uh, the most, especially rear, helping to rear up the children, the most uh, women and mothers, grandmothers have the greatest impact on, on directing children uh, toward the Lord if they're going to have a life of walking with the Lord. Now here in chapter one, just to do a little survey, um, the Egypt becomes aware of that Israel and the descendants of the sons of Israel has become a very large group, a populous group within the land. And in fact, uh, beginning at verse 8, it says, Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And in the event of war, they also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities of Pithon and Ramesses. The, apparently Israel um, became very prolific. The, the children, they had many children, rose up to be men, and uh, there was an inc incredible uh, community of them. Um, I have seen some recent uh, programs where archaeologists are all trying to deny this, uh, trying to deny that there's no evidence of Israel ever uh, being in the land of Egypt or in the land of Goshen or whatever. And um, it, it just uh, amazes me um, because I used to work in the scientific community. I do understand the scientific process and, and so forth. And, you know, we have a thing which we all recognize in the scientific and technical worlds. It's called a paradigm. A paradigm is where you have a belief of something so strongly that even though you see evidence to the contrary, you can't see the evidence anymore. You, you dismiss it. You just can't, can't get past it. Um, one of the classic uh, examples of a paradigm, I don't have a set for you, but I'll give you an example of what a paradigm, how it works. All of you are familiar with um, playing cards, a uh, deck of cards. You know, the red and black cards, and, and they have the four suits. And you know, for example, that hearts and diamonds are the red cards, and uh, clubs and spades are the black cards. But did you know that if I could print a set, and by the way, this has been done, if I could print a set and just reverse those two colors, I could make the clubs and spades to be red and make the diamonds and hearts to be black. I could hand you that deck of cards and you would play cards with it and you wouldn't notice it. You wouldn't be able to tell what was wrong with the deck. Uh, 
And the reason is because your brain is so committed to knowing what that is that even though your eyes are showing you something different, your brain won't process it. That's a classic definition of what we call a paradigm, uh, where you just can't get it. You just can't see it, although it's right there in front of you. And there is uh, historically this story of Israel coming out of Egypt because Egyptian archaeology is the gold standard of all archaeology. In fact, uh, archaeologists all base all world archaeology off of the Egyptian uh, history because the Egyptians were the most prolific at making etchings and ancient things that are still visible today, the tombs and, uh, and where they recount their history. And, and while going through all of that, they didn't see anything about Israel being mentioned by the Egyptians. And so as a result, they dismiss in toto uh, the Bible the biblical account, uh, refusing to agree to any of it. Now, the same archaeologists also are aware that, that the ancient peoples also had paradigms, and they recognize this about them. They know, for example, the ancient peoples, such as Egypt, if they went out and lost a battle, uh, they didn't do too many etchings explaining how they lost battles. <laughs> Uh, if they won the battle, or if they kind of won the battle, well, then there's all kinds of stuff announcing that they won and they did good. and, and all. It's a little bit like uh, uh, you've got this big win-loss record, but we only remember the years we won. Well, as you can imagine, when God dealt with Egypt, Egypt didn't win. Tremendously, Egypt did not. I mean, God destroyed the land of Egypt if you recall from the Egyptian story. Well, for some reason, the Egyptian uh, story, the archaeological story, doesn't make much any mention of that. Except unless you're really paying attention and you don't have this paradigm where archaeologists completely dismiss everything in the Bible before we can consider what is the history of that people. If you're willing to allow these ancient writings to be part of the historical record that has to be balanced with other things that you find archaeologically, everything works out just fine. In fact, it's in this recent last 10 years or so that we finally have a couple of uh, archaeologists willing to stand up and to make that claim. So guess what? As a result of standing up, guess what they have discovered? Well, some of the digs they've found, they've suddenly discovered these incredibly large communities found in ancient Egypt, and there were coins found that had the name Jacob on them, which is a pretty good evidence that the people of Jacob probably lived there. Um, and there also is other Egyptian writings that had not been correlated, in which that it speaks of a year, a particular year, that God, it just simply says this, God destroyed Egypt. It took them an entire generation, almost 40 years, to recover from it, to come back to the stature of the nation that they used to be. And rather than dismissing those things, they seem to fit uh, the biblical timeline of the story of the kings of Egypt and with also the Exodus story. Um, the reason I, I mention that 
is because not only do we have um, uh, archaeologists, the scientific community, disputing the biblical record, we also have lots of wonderful Christians who like to dispute the weight of the biblical record as well. Let me qualify my statement there a little bit more. Yes, there are many of my Christian brethren who look at this book and they say, well, it's historically, it it's, uh, has historical uh, evidence to it. However, there's some things that begin in this book, specifically in this portion, and I'm going to point them out to you, that are absolutely profound to the issue of how do we determine who the Messiah is. And they come from when God began to first do this incredible work of salvation and deliverance for a large group of people. Would you agree with me that the Messiah was sent by the Father to come for the purpose of saving and delivering God's people, you know, in the course of the provisions of the new covenant? Well, I submit to you that God's been in the saving business for a long time. And what he's going to do here in the exodus of delivering his people out of Egypt, has set the pattern for us to then follow and see, does the Messiah follow the same pattern? Does, if he's coming as Savior and Deliverer, does he do the same things that God did when he came to deliver the children of Israel out from under the hand of the Egyptians? And my argument is yes, very much so. So we're going to look at a couple of things in this portion that sets the very foundation for our faith and our belief in Messiah Yeshua. Uh, chapter 2 <clears throat> goes into uh, explaining to us how Moses is going to come into the world, and Moses is going to become the central figure, obviously, of leading uh, the children of Israel out of Egypt. And it addresses his birth. The, one of the things that we say about Moses, that he was the humblest man in the world, and the basis for that is not necessarily his interworkings with various people throughout his life, because you'd kind of chase your tail trying to figure, well, what's the basis of that? Is that when you go back and understand about his own birth, Moses' birth was a miracle birth even greater than the birth of Isaac. The reason we say that Isaac had a miracle birth is because Sarah was beyond the age of bearing children. Yoshebel, his mother, was even older than Sarah. Way much older. She was born the day they arrived in Egypt. She ended up marrying her nephew, to have a, ma a man young enough to be able to father children. And she gave birth to Aaron and Miriam and Moses. And in effect, he had a miracle birth with a mother who was way beyond the age of childbearing, even greater than the story of how Isaac came to be. It is on the basis of that that Moses has this attribute where we refer to him as the humblest man of the world because he could have written in here his story and emphasized that and he completely just kind of ignored it. He gave the honor off to Sarah and Isaac in the story of Genesis. He simply explains how he himself was preserved, how he was uh, kept alive and about how that he was drawn out of the waters uh, floating in the river Nile in the basket 
and how one of the uh, princesses of Egypt helped to raise him and his mother nursed him and, and his sister looked out for him and how he how his upbringing, his youth, was both the combination in the house of Pharaoh as well as with his Hebrew people. And of course, it recounts for us that he got up to a certain age. He defended a, a Hebrew man uh, that was being attacked by an Egyptian. And, um, as a res- and he did that kind of secretly. And as a result of that matter being made known, he had to flee from Egypt. And then he goes off to the land of Midian. Um, where he's going to have his experience with the Lord at the burning bush. I want to get to the part about where he comes and has this experience with the burning bush because there's certain key things the Lord is going to say in his conversation with Moses that is extremely profound for us even to this day. So if you would, move with me quickly now to uh, chapter 3. Moses is now in the land of Midian. He's working for his um, father-in-law, Yithro. He's tending sheep. You know, what an honorable task that is as compared to growing up in the house of Pharaoh as a youth and and civilization and all that Egypt was in those days. Uh, Follow along with me as I read now, chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Where have we previously heard where God would say something like that and that would be the response? Well, this is the same God who would call upon Abraham, the same God who would call upon Jacob. He calls them by their name and their response is, here I am, Lord. And so the same thing. I want you to take note that two times his name was spoken. Not once, two times. This is not because God stutters and needs a little help pronouncing the name. This is not because Moses is hard of hearing and you have to say his name a couple of times so you can hear. It's two distinct voices that spoke his name. We continue. Uh, Verse 5, then he said, do not come near, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face and he was afraid to look at God. So right off the bat, we know it's the same God that we've been dealing with back in the book of Genesis. There's no question about that. Let me make a statement to you. Right now, there's some people struggling with the whole idea about whether Allah is God or that the God we believe in is also Allah. Allah does not lay claim to believe being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Allah takes on its own name from the time of Muhammad. The God we believe in is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, I can say, we don't believe in the God called Allah. It's another Johnny-come-lately God, if you will, that's trying to latch on to part of the glory of the one true God. The God we believe in is exactly the one who states it this way. I am the God 
of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amen and amen. But I also want you to take note of this. He said, I am the God of your father. Now, who was the father of Moses? That was Amram. Amram, the one who married Yoshebel. So the Lord is even relating to him directly to his father, his personal father. If you've heard the expression before that when one of the patriarchs dies, that they go to their fathers. Um, if we were to be truly honest and step back, you and I, every one of us, are the product of our fathers. I am the product of, of uh, my, my earthly father, Charles William Judah, who is the product of his father before him, before him, before him, before him, that traces back. And that's one of the ways that God sees us. God does not see you as an individual suddenly plopped into the world. He sees you as a person that is a part of the whole creation. He sees this entire creation thing that he's made. And by the way, he has been working on your life a long time before you ever showed up by working through your fathers to position you for the time when, you, when your destiny would come and you would be a part of it. It's important, and I'm not necessarily suggesting ancestral worship as some religions do it, but I am saying this. Part of the commandment to honor your father and your mother is to recognize how God used those in the previous generations to help bring you about. And that you are part of the rationale and the reasons, the destiny for your own children and grandchildren. That you are part of this process of God dealing with all of mankind in the world that we have today. And part of us, uh, part of the definition of believing in God is to see yourself in the greater context, you know, from the very beginning to all the way to the end to the kingdom, and that you have a part uh, in that, and God has been involved with you for many generations and generations that follow, and so forth. That's part of his role as creator and heavenly father uh, to us. So he immediately introduced himself as the God of his father. And what he's trying to do is God's trying to say to Moses, look, I'm involved with your life. I'm with you. You know, you are part of something that's been going on for a long time. To immediately give him the basis of a relationship so, that we, so God can now have a conversation with him. And the conversation is going to immediately shift to, I need you to do a task that's for the descendants of them. In other words, we're going to get involved. Part of your destiny is going to be involved with what God started with your fathers and what he's continuing to do with the descendants, the promises that he made to the fathers. Um, verse 7, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. You know, a lot of times when we have troubles in our life, you know, one of the first things we challenge or question is, God, did you even know I was in this trouble? Yeah, the Lord uh, knows you're in that trouble. The Lord, he saw this situation coming a long time ago. He knew you were going to be facing that. We need to grasp that truth. We need to come to terms with the Lord does understand the difficulties whenever they come that are in our life. That's the basis of his compassion, his understanding, and how he's going to be responding. 
uh, to us. It doesn't come as a shock to him that suddenly you have a problem. It might come as a shock to you, but it doesn't come as a shock to him that you have this difficulty. Verse 8, so I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me furthermore, to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And by the way, this is a very serious, reasonable question. Consider this for a moment. Moses' stature in life at this particular moment is he's a shepherd. He's working for his father-in-law. He's part of, he doesn't even have his own house established. Um, And who is he to go up to Pharaoh, who's head of state of a world civilization, and to have any kind of a conversation with him about either asking or demanding anything of him? I mean, it's a little bit like right now, if all of a sudden somebody were to stand up in our midst and says, well, God has told me to go to President Obama and go to the White House and tell President Obama a couple of things and specifically ask President Obama to change a couple of things and, and so forth. What, what, do you, what do you think your, your chances are? Huh? Uh, you know, you're listening to this fellow describe this. What, what would you say to him? You, you, you know, let's, let's sit back down and let's drink some more of what you've been drinking some more and maybe this mood will go away. Yeah, I mean, you know, we consider the person to be crazy. It's, it's silly. It, 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 the, your station of life is completely beyond the possibility of the context of having a conversation even with the president. Well, here's Moses logically asking a question. He said, who the heck am I to go have a conversation with Pharaoh even about the weather? You know, let alone the things that you just listed. I want you to listen to how God answers this. Verse 12, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. Whoa, that changes everything. I'm the ambassador. I'm coming to speak on behalf of the creator of the universe. The creator of heaven and earth. You too, Pharaoh. You wouldn't exist without him. I'm speaking for him and he is with me. Now, there is no higher authority. That is authority that is high enough that even Pharaoh should listen to. And that you would have a right to go and speak to Pharaoh if you're representing such an authority. If all of a sudden, your example of you getting ready to go talk to President Obama, if all of a sudden you have just been elected, the entire country has seceded from the federal government and they've just elected you to be the new leader of the entire country, then you would have the position to go and maybe talk to President Obama. I'm here to talk to you because I represent all the people. Well, Moses now, I'm the representative of the entire universe and I'm coming to talk to you now. You just have a measly little country on one of the planets in the universe. That's essentially what the Lord is saying. He's trying to show the authority that you will have comes from me. The Messiah, 
the authority that he comes with to do the work of salvation and deliverance is not the authority of the son of a carpenter from Nazareth or from the tribe of Judah, which is one of the tribes of all of Israel. He comes with the authority that Moses came with, the creator of the universe and the king of kings. He comes with that authority. Now, you can imagine what the conflict's going to be. Pharaoh is not going to recognize the authority of Moses, and he's going to have to be taught some lessons about who has the real authority over things. And the same thing is true of Yeshua. Even when he came to his own countrymen, there was a great question about, by what authority do you do these things? How, how are you doing these things? What makes you think you can speak to this situation? One of the great controversies that the Jews have with and the rabbis have with the testimony of Yeshua of Nazareth is this one statement when he healed the man that was very ill. You remember the bed they lowered down into the house where he was teaching? And he made this incredible statement when he healed this man and he said, your sins are forgiven you. And he got up out of the bed and he was well. Well, the rabbinical authorities know that the only person who can forgive sins is God. When, and, and the Pharisees knew this too. And when he made that statement, that's part of the reason why they got so upset with him was only God can do that. But by what authority did you forgive that man's sins? How, how could you do that? Because he was exercising and using the authority of God. Now, let me just go ahead and tell you, for those of you who are a little faint-hearted, you don't know whether Yeshua was actually God or not, no man has the authority to forgive sins of any man. No father can do it for his son as much as he'd like to. No son can do it for his father. No human being can forgive sins of another human being. But the Messiah, who is God, can forgive sins. And he demonstrated it and proved it when the man got up and was no longer subject to his sin anymore. It's a simple little thing like that. Now, Yeshua goes on and reiterates with many other deeds that he has the authority of Almighty God when he came. He could do the things only God could do. And so, Moses is being instructed, when you go, you're not going to go in your personal authority, not by the power of your personality. You'll be going because I will certainly be with you and I've sent you and you'll be using the authority of me to carry out your duties that you do for me. And he goes on to say, and when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. At this same place where you've met with me, you'll be bringing the people back to, we will worship here uh, together. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel and I shall say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? At this particular point in time, the children of Israel from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they really didn't have a proper name for God. They, what they had was El Shaddai, Almighty God. They, they knew God by his power, his authority. He was called the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham. But if you were to just cite who, what is his name, and there was, some, there was some mystery about that in the time as to what does God really have a specific name 
we know him through his relationships with our, with our family, but what is his actual specific name? And he knew that would be, if you had a conversation with God, what did he tell you? I mean, if you met with God, you know, what is his name? By the way, if you go and you say, you met with so-and-so, he's going to say, well, who is so-and-so? What, what's his name? Somebody goes to tell me about, well, somebody's done a teaching on this. I say, well, what's his name? You know, what's the name of the person who did this teaching? Um, that's a natural question first. And so Moses is asking this natural question. What shall I say is your name? So God is going to answer him on this question. Verse 14. And God said, Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, now, my version says the Lord, but this is where we have the yod heh vav heh Some pronounce as Yahweh or Yehovah. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Essentially, he's announcing from this point forward, all of mankind will know me by this name. Um, and there is also uh, something mysterious about the name. And this is a reason why the Hebrew people um, wrestle with this just a little bit. Let me use that word. There's always been in the Messianic movement a kind of a question about how do you pronounce the name? If there's four Hebrew letters, we don't have in the original script the vowel points listed. So it's always trying to figure out how to put the vowel points into how to phonetically uh, speak the name. I will tell you that the Hebrews, and this comes from rabbinical authority, they do not attempt to speak the name. They hold the name in very high regard. And if, in fact, the name is at all mentioned, you know, they always issue a blessing to the name immediately afterwards, blessed be his name. And in fact, the most typical blessing is Baruch Hashem, Blessed be the name is the more typical. You and I would say, praise the Lord, they'd say Baruch Hashem. They'd say, blessed be his name. Uh, and it's all part of honoring his name, not allowing his name to be common, because there is a commandment in the Ten Commandments that says, you shall not take my name in vain. And we believe that commandment is about the specific name that is being cited here. Now, I think that primarily what he's saying is, in the commandment is not so much about the phonetics of the pronunciation of his name, but more about if you have a testimony of believing in this God and serving this God, and then you turn around and you misbehave, you bring dishonor on his name. You were a representative, you were a servant of him, and you've made his name common. You, you, you've brought his name down because of, your, because of the shame and the embarrassment that you've brought because of your misbehavior. And so I think part of, the, part of what that commandment is, has to do primarily with that, as opposed to specific pronunciation. But as you know, in the modern messianic movement, we have certain elements that have made a big deal out of this. We call it the sacred name movement, where they have to have a certain pronunciation. Um, many years ago, when B'nai Shalom was uh, first really getting started, we had some first elements of liturgy, and I was teaching Ephraim. Uh, how to do the liturgical service. Um, there was a person that came to our service and went through the service, saw it, and wanted to come back and wanted to offer some correction on the proper phonetic pronunciation of the Hebrew. 
that we were that we were using in the liturgy. And I stopped this person and I said, "You mean you're trying to offer correction to us on how to pronounce the Hebrew correctly?" I said, "Well, yes. You know, you need to speak that. You need to speak it correctly." And I said, "Well, well, ma'am." I said, "This is Oklahoma." We don't even speak the king's English well here. <laughs> you say Adonai, we say Adonai. You know, uh, you know it, it, it's, it, the Lord knows what we're talking about. And I said, and we don't base our faith on that we have to speak a strict uh, dialect of the Hebrew or, or from the ancient Hebrew. Some say Yahweh, some say Yahweh, some say Yehovah. What, you know, you know. Some say Yahua. Uh, th- there's different variations of how people. It's oh, it's all how you place the vowel structure on this. But I do know this: in the course of my own lifetime, um, people have mispronounced my name a multitude of times. I've been called Mr. Judy, you know, a lot of times in my life. But you know what? By the tone of their voice and because of the circumstances, I knew they weren't trying to defame my name. They weren't trying to purposely mispronounce my name for me. I could tell they they were just struggling with how to pronounce it, but I knew what the intent of the heart was. And then there's other people that have spoken my name phonetically exactly right, and I knew that the tone of their voice was also to dishonor and devalue me. You see, I have the ability to discern what is your intent toward me. By the way, I believe the Lord has that ability as too as well. When you call upon him, I believe he can detect your heart and so whether you are speaking to him honorably and in a worshipful manner or whether you're being disobedient and rebellious, I believe he can tell that too. It has nothing to do with the phonetic pronunciation. It has everything to do with what is your heart expressing uh, toward the Lord. Um, but this is a powerful place in which the God has made a tremendous change in his relationship with his people. Because the fact of the matter is, to build a personal relationship with another person, you have to get to know the other person's name. Um, you ever met anybody who said, oh, my best friend's from such and such. Yeah, he was my best friend when I was in the Navy. And you'd say, well, what was his name? And he says, uh, you know, I never did get that part. <laughs> wow, that wasn't much of a best friend, was it, if you didn't even get to know his name? He was just another guy. Well, the same thing is with us. Yeah, this is one of the criteria for the basis of a definition for a, an intimate relationship. You have to know the name. And that's the reason why uh, human beings, when we meet one another, one of the first things that we do is we exchange our names because it's, it's a basis to build relationship. And God wants to share his name with his people. He wants to build this relationship with his people. He wants the people to know his name, to call him specifically. He knows our names. You remember I telling you at the start of this book, it's about the book of names. Are you starting to get the significance of why the Hebrews call it the book of names? Because in this book, we get the name of God. Even Abraham didn't know this name. And so we have this new relationship as a community uh, before God to call upon him for it. Um, he continues, uh, by the way, in the Hebrew, 
where the phrase comes in verse 15, this is my name forever. That's a very interesting um, uh, rendition of that um, Hebrew word there. If you go and look at that particular Hebrew word, there is a missing vav in that word. They spell the same word forever, olam, but they take the vav out. It's a shortened and a different spelling for the same word. So the question is, well, why, why is that vav missing? And it makes for, this is the definition, that his name has a quality uh, that is about concealment. There's a quality to his name that you can hide in his name and he will conceal you. That, that's, that puts a whole nother spin on knowing the name of God, that there's a quality about God as you get to know him. He has the ability to conceal you in him. And he himself can be concealed within us. He, he goes inside of us as well. We can be in him, in that relationship. That's a very interesting little twist there in there. It's a, a letter is missing in the spelling of that word forever. And, and the rabbis say this is because there's a quality of his name for concealment. Um, verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of the Egyptians to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And then Moses has another question here. And they will pay, or the Lord goes on first, and they will pay heed to what you say, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews has met with us, so now please let us go three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to our Lord. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So the Lord already is saying, look, I'm, I'm putting you on a course of events. I want you to go, Moses, announce to the elders, I've appeared to you, uh, speak of my authority to them, gather them as the elders, and then all of you, I want you to go before Pharaoh, and I want you to make these pronouncements that you represent the God of the Hebrew people. And he says, by the way, let me go ahead and just tell you what the results are going to be. Pharaoh's going to laugh you right out of the place. He is, he's not going to agree with you. He's not going to recognize the authority uh, of me whatsoever. He's going to think he's top dog here and that he doesn't have to be subject to it. We tell this story uh, kind of on the side to kind of picture this whole scenario. We have Moses and Aaron, the elders of Israel, that come and they approach Pharaoh. And he says, uh, stands up, and this is the way the Hebrews would share the story. They say, Pharaoh... Adonai, God of the Hebrews, says, let my people go. And you got to understand that in Egypt, they have lots of gods. Lots and lots of gods. They have a god that's out of a bug. They've got a god for the sun. They've got a god for the thunder. They've got a god for the river Nile. Uh, they got gods. Even pharaohs are gods. I mean, there's gods everywhere. And so if you come in announcing, hey, Adonai, Yahweh, God of the Hebrews, he's going to go, I've never heard of that God. 
I mean, I've heard a lot of gods, but I've never heard of their God. And of course, Pharaoh wants to honor all the gods, but I've never heard of this God. And so essentially, they, in the story we tell of this, that Pharaoh says that. I don't know any Adonai God of the Hebrews. And he asks all the scribes, look through all the books, the history of Egypt. Tell me, can you find anywhere there's a God of the Hebrews? Adonai. See if you can find it. They all come back and they say, we don't know any God called Adonai, God of the Hebrews. And so Pharaoh is going to respond to Moses and Aaron and the elders and say, I do not know Adonai, God of the Hebrews, therefore I will not let the people go. And essentially the rest of this story uh, becomes... Well, Pharaoh, let me introduce you to Adonai, God of the Hebrews. And the whole sense of judgments that now will fall upon Egypt is for him to get to know who Adonai, God of the Hebrews, is. And in fact, what you'll find as we go through the rest of the book of Exodus is that each time these judgments, the ones that were announced, each time they're announced, Moses is making the statement, so you, Pharaoh, might know that God... <laughs> is not like your other gods. And that you might know that God is in the midst of all of Egypt. That you might know that God is in the midst of the whole world. That you might know that there's only one God. You know, he proceeds to orient him to Adonai, God of the Hebrews, and explain to him he's completely different from all the other gods, completely different from you. And, and that you will have to obey his voice. His authority is greater than any authority that you have ever heard of being king of Egypt, pharaoh of Egypt, or any of the gods of Egypt, that his authority is far surpasses any of the authority. That's really what it comes down to. By the way, the great conflict of every man. Let me tell you why people accept the Lord. They finally yield to the authority of the Lord. And those who do not accept the Lord do not yield to the authority of the Lord. They make the mistake of Pharaoh. There's also another ancient tradition that the Hebrew people teach about the conflict between Pharaoh and God is that Pharaoh was the first real tyrant, we'll use that word, against Israel, the first real tyrant. And we, of course, don't believe that Pharaoh at the end of his life went to Abraham's bosom. We believe he went to another place. We believe that God stations him at the gates of Hades. And that every tyrant in the history of the world that has gone through uh, and um, throughout, whether it be Amalek or whether it be Hitler, that when they pass from this mortal life and they make their journey to this waiting place of torments, that the first person they have to meet is Pharaoh. And that Pharaoh has the same question for every one of them. The question goes like this. Did you not learn anything at all from my life? I tried to stand up to the God of the Hebrews, and you saw what happened to me. So what? you didn't learn any of that? So that you go into Hades, all tyrants go into Hades, you know, with Pharaoh lecturing them about how dumb they were, and they couldn't even learn the lesson from his own life. Uh, that's one of the other dynamics that we teach. Again, the stories are to bring out the significance and the contrast between the conflict between the Lord and Pharaoh, this conflict of authority. Um, 
you do know that when the Messiah comes back and he's victorious over all things, you know what he's planning on doing. You do know this. He's going to gather up all authority and give it back to his father. He's going to take all the authority that everybody has usurped and pulled from God and tried to use, tried to imitate, and he's going to give it back to his father properly where it belongs. Um, and that's part of the work of, in the same way that Moses did not take upon himself, but he was used by the Lord to do the work of the Lord himself. All right, now we come down to uh, chapter 4, and this is probably the most crucial question uh, in this whole process. Uh, Moses has been told, I, the Lord, will be with you, will be using my authority to deal with it. You're going to speak to the elders. You're going to get them to cooperate with you. You're going to go to Pharaoh, there's, and, and you're going to tell them that I've appeared to you and, and things like that, and they, they will follow and go with you. You're going to go to Pharaoh. He is not going to respond. There's going to be this conflict of it. But now we get down to something way more fundamental about Moses being dispatched to the children of Israel. And this goes to the very heart of the Messiah being sent by our fatherly father to us. The question is found in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered and said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. What do we do about that? What if Moses goes and the people rise up and they say, well, Moses, I don't know what's wrong with you, but I think you're crazy. I think you, you've been drinking your own bathwater. And I think that you don't know what you're talking about. And all of this talk about you're going to lead us out of Egypt and you've talked to God and, and so forth. Quite honestly, <clears throat> if somebody came to you and said, oh, God has appeared to me, and he told me to come tell you something, how would you react to it? Well, can you imagine the Messiah coming into the midst of his countrymen, the son of a carpenter in the backwater, dinky little place called Nazareth? And he shows up and he says, hey, uh, my heavenly father, God Almighty, God of Abraham, Isaac, and, you know, the God that led Moses and the children... He, he sent me to come tell you about salvation and deliverance. Why in the world would anybody believe it? Now, what follows is very simple and very straightforward. Here's what God says is necessary for you to believe. And I want you to take... He's answering the question, how would they believe? Verse 2, And the Lord said to him, What is in your hand? And he said, a staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand, grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand, caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now, it's more than just a magician's trick. There's something profound that's being laid the foundation to. So he says, Moses, let me tell you how they're going to believe. You're going to have a sign that I'm going to give from you that when they see you do this sign, will definitely get their attention. It will be the evidence that there's something with you that goes way beyond who you are. 
that truly God has dispatched you, has sent you. That because there's things going to happen here that only God can do. Now he goes on to say still further, he gives another sign. Verse 5, the God of your father, uh, verse 6 I should say. And the Lord furthermore said to him, now put your hand into your bosom. So he's put his hand into a bosom and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Which means, by the way, when it's leprous like snow, it is completely dead. The tissue is completely dead. The only possible thing you could do with a leprous hand that was white as snow is amputate it. There's no living tissue left in it. It is completely dead. His hand was leprous like snow. He said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand into a bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. His hand comes back. His hand is alive again. No leprosy. Only God can do that. Even a doctor can't do that. A doctor cannot take dead flesh and make it living again. He can remove it and hope new flesh grows. But God can take that which is dead and make it alive again. And still, verse 8, and still come about, if they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the, of the last sign. But it shall be that if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some of the water from the Nile, pour it on dry ground, and the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. God gave Moses three signs. The first he gave was the staff. He said, this is a powerful sign. They will believe because of this. He said, if they're still hesitating, they still can't quite get it, okay? I'm going to give you another sign. It's the sign of, of how I'll do this instant healing of your hand. If they still can't, can't quite get the witness of that, I'll give you a third sign. By the way, did you know the Torah teaches us on the evidence of two or three, every truth is established. That you need to have a sign, you need to have a confirming sign. If you have a set, uh, another confirming sign, on the evidence of two or three, you have the basis of to establish truth. The question is, did Yeshua truthfully come being sent by our Heavenly Father to do the work of the Messiah. Because in the case of Moses, we know he was sent by God because he did these signs and the people, we know the historical fact, they did come out of Egypt. And God did deliver the people out of Egypt. And, and this is the way Moses was dispatched. So let's ask the question. So when the Messiah was dispatched to us, when we read in the early accounts of the Gospels, what did Yeshua do to prove to us that he was sent by the Father? Well, one of the first things that he did, it's recorded for us in the book of John, is he took the disciples to the wedding at Cana. And if you recall, they ran out of wine. I think it's because Yeshua invited too many guests. They weren't counting on that number of people to come to the reception. And they drank the wine. And so he turned water into wine. By the way, turning water into wine, turning water into blood, is exactly the same spiritual sign. 
Water, blood means life in a spiritual context. So he did the sign of Moses then. John records for us very shortly thereafter the second time that Yeshua was in Cana of Galilee. In this particular case, he's been out preaching, ministering to many people, doing healings. Well, there's a, a father who has a son in Capernaum. And his son is very ill. He has heard that Yeshua is doing some healing. He's desperate. He travels from Capernaum to Cana in, in the effort to try to get Yeshua to come to Capernaum to heal his son. When he meets up with Yeshua at Cana, Yeshua says to him something very interesting. Unless these people see signs, they will not believe. By the way, that's exactly what the Lord said to Moses. I will give you signs so that they will believe. So what does he do? Yeshua says, your son lives. He wasn't even in the same place with him. Didn't, didn't do anything for him. Didn't lay hands on him. Didn't pray over him. Nothing. He just said, your son lives. When the father is journeying back to Capernaum the next day, he's met by the servants of his house who herald to him, your son lives. And he asked at what hour did he become well? At the seventh hour yesterday, the very hour that Yeshua said, your son lives. And John records for us, this is the second sign that Yeshua did in Cana of Galilee. The second sign. What second sign of what? The second sign of Moses. There's only one sign left. It has to do with that staff. Yeshua, speaking into the future of his crucifixion, said the following. When you see the Son of Man lifted up like Moses' staff in the wilderness then you will see I am. When Yeshua was lifted up on the cross, they put a sign above the cross. It stated his name and what he was charged with, his crime. They put it in three languages. In the Hebrew, it was Yeshua HaNetzaret Melech HaYehudim. Four Hebrew words there. The first letter of those four Hebrew words is Yod, He, Vav, He, the name that God gave himself to Moses at the burning bush. This is called the acrostics, where we take the first letter of words and we believe it's a secret message from the Lord. This is well, well known. In fact, you and I use acrostics all the time. That's how we make abbreviations. We make abbreviations. Do you know the word radar is an acronym? It's an acrostic for a big, long phrase, for range and detection, and, and, you know, it has to do with the radio aspect of radar. We call it radar because it's an acronym. We make a whole new word out of the first letters of describing what, what a radar really is. And there are many other acronyms that we use commonly, which are the acrostics. We take the first letter. That's how we communicate. God was communicating and said, here I am. The I am God. Here's his name. And if you recall, when Yeshua was raised up on the cross and Pilate had put that sign up, the religious leaders wanted the sign changed. Reworded some other different way. They couldn't stand that it was worded because they knew what it meant. They knew what the people would see. They knew what it represented. That it was the very name of God up there with the Messiah being crucified with Yeshua on the cross. The, uh, in the ancient prophecy, 
Uh, by the way, that prophecy of Moses lifting his staff, we'll, we'll read about it in Numbers. Um, I find it absolutely intriguing how the Hebrews, how the rabbis explained how that miracle worked. Let me go into that for a moment. If you remember, the children of Israel murmuring, causing trouble with the Lord, not getting along with each other, and the Lord allowed fiery serpents to come into the camp. They came up out of the ground, started biting everybody. Everybody started getting sick and dying and so forth. They appealed to Moses. Moses appealed to God. And so then um, uh, the God gave instructions to Moses. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a bronze serpent, wrap it around your staff, hold up your staff with the serpent. And when the people look at it, look up and look at it, then they'll be healed. How's that supposed to work? What do you mean? Look up at it and then you're healed. Now, I want you to play along with me for a moment. I'm going to speculate for you a little bit. Moses does this. He's got the staff. He's got, you know, the word has gone out. So we've got people spreading the word. All you have to do is look and lift. The only reason why you would look is not because somebody told you to look. The only reason why you'd look is because you have a hope that God somehow is going to heal you. That you, you're, you, you have a belief in God. You're, you're hoping God will do something for you. That's the only reason why you would look, because the logic of what you've been asked to do doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense at all. What? You, you, I just have to look up at that thing? I don't feel like looking up. And the only reason why you wouldn't look is because you're obstinate to any instruction and direction being given to you. You understand what I'm saying? It comes down to something real simple. Are you going to follow what the Lord has said, or are you going to not follow what the Lord said? And if you're, we're down to basics. If you're not willing to follow what the Lord said, then you're going to die. But the people who are willing to listen to what the Lord said lived. When Yeshua was presented for us on the cross, it comes down to a very simple question for every person when it comes to salvation and deliverance. Do you want to live because life comes from the Lord, or do you want to die in your own sins and of yourself? Do you want to get out of yourself and look to the Lord and look up? Or do you want to keep your head down, wallow in your sin and die? Every person who is going to be going to hell and say hello to Pharaoh on the way in is going to do so because they refused to look up. The offer was freely given to everyone. They just refused to listen to what the Lord had to say. And Yeshua has come and made it as simple as he possibly can. And by the way, the reason why I believe that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah is not because there's a grand group of people called Christians and I want to hang out with Christians. It's not even because my grandmother believed in it and I loved my grandmother and other people who loved me and because they believed in it. It's not because I wanted to be part of my family is because Yeshua of Nazareth came doing the exact same signs of God that God gave to Moses when he came to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. The logic is very simple, just as I shared with a, an Orthodox Jew not too long ago. If you believe that God did dispatch Moses down to Egypt with those three signs, commissioned with the authority of God, to lead the children of Israel up out of Egypt. 
then why is it you don't believe that Yeshua of Nazareth, who did exactly the same signs to do the work of the Messiah, you don't believe him? He did the same signs that Moses did. No other man has ever done since. These are the signs that God gave that would confirm he who has sent a savior and deliverer you know, to all of us all. So as you can see, this first portion about Exodus lays out a foundation for the basis of the conflict with God, with his enemies, the conflict in belief and unbelief, and certainly the evidence that we should be relying on as to why we believe. I'm, I want to recount... Um, I want to recount to you the words that uh, uh, this Orthodox Jew I met, Hanak Young, said to me after I presented the three signs of Moses and showed that Yeshua had done them. He, he took his head in his hands and he looked like this and he said, I've never heard any such thing like this. By the way, he's not alone. I know a whole lot of Christians who claim to believe in Yeshua have never heard any such thing either. And I submit to you, we better start checking our spiritual thermometers and our spiritual status. Who do we believe in and why do we believe that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah? And let's get that straight and get that right so that our faith is based in the truth of the evidence of two or three before we try to go further uh, learning more about his salvation and deliverance. Amen? All right. Well, that gets us started into the book of Exodus, the great story of the Exodus. I look forward to teaching the remainder of this book uh, in this new year uh, with us. And so let's conclude with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the wonderful story, the book of Exodus. Thank you, Lord, for raising up Moses the way you did. I ask, Lord, as we go through this book and study it this year, that you would renew within us the relationship that we have with you, strengthen us in our relationship, and let us be part of those people whom you delivered out of Egypt. Let us relate to their fathers as our fathers. Let us see you as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fulfiller and the, the one who keeps promise and covenant with us. And help us, Lord, to, in our days and in our life, recognize our role and our destiny in your great story of salvation and deliverance through the Messiah, Yeshua. We ask all of this in his name. you and keep you.
The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.